I just told everyone that you were Optim Optimus Prime. You're not listening to... Almost live from the surface of Cybertron, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Adam, and I'm in the studio all by myself. Well, except for Optimus Prime here. We already know that! <clears throat> Anyhow, Scott's on vacation this week. He and his lovely fiance Anita have taken a road trip out to Gen Con in scenic Minneapolis, Minnesota. Scott will be back next show with Tales from the Road in the convention, I think. I've been monitoring his uh, Twitter feed and have noticed that he's been, he was really excited uh, about seeing Will Wheaton speak. So hopefully he got his picture taken with Wesley Crusher because that's one of Scott's things. Every time he meets a celebrity, he gets his photo taken with him. I'll have him uh, explain that to you next show. But we still have a great show for you this week, I promise. Although we've ditched the long-form interview just because of logistics, we have some really unreal content this week, including an interview with Edmontonian Carrie Robinson, who was shortlisted to audition for the popular TV show Wipeout. She's going to tell us a little bit about that experience. We have another sex talk segment this week with Brenda Kerber from the Traveling Tickle Trunk. An exclusive interview with Stanley Wu, one of the founders of Edmonton's a cappella group known as Apocalypse Cow. And we chat with Ari Riot, who some of you might know as Miss Pixie Riot on Twitter. She's the founder of geekbadge.ca, an online store where you can find all kinds of hilarious and awesome geeky buttons relating to all things nerd on the internets. But before we get to all of that, I'd like to take a moment to pop open our mailbag. You've got mail. You remember this guy from the last episode of The Unknown Studio, Chris Martiniak was our guest, and we talked about yeglive.ca, the uh, the event service, the website that promotes music in Edmonton and does automated ticket sales. I got this message from Chris last week. He says, quick note to say thanks for having me on the show. It turned out great. And thanks for sparing me all the tough investigative journalism questions too. Though that sports question in the Fast 15 still has me stumped. If I can ever be of service, just let me know, Chris. Well, Chris, the first thing you could do is tell everyone that in fact we are very difficult interviewers, that we do ask the hard questions, and that we're into investigative journalism. But it was really nice to receive this note from Chris. Um, quite often we'll just get a, hey, thanks from our guests, and it's, it, you know, it's nice to know that he actually listened to his episode and that he's still thinking about the Fast 15. I have another note here from uh, Unknown Studio listener Mike. He's also a friend of Scott's and mine. Uh, we've known him for quite a while, and he says, Hey, dude, I've been catching up on a pile of Unknown Studio website content I've missed lately. Since I haven't shared so much as a hello with you in a few months, I figured now's as good a time as ever. Just wanted to say that I'm extremely impressed with how far you and Scott have come this past year. I may have uh, been a little too critical in the show's infancy, and I'll interject here. Mike was one of the... Um, first people I think who really listened to the show who really knew that we were going to do it and he had a few I would say fairly reasonable criticisms of the show when we started in particular after that first and second episode that you know how we used to carry the whole soundscape through the entire show 
and it got really distracting. Mike told us to cut that right out, and so we did. Now, anyway, to continue Mike's letter. But now that your little experiment has come into its own, I think you guys have done an amazing job in so short a time span. Keep it real, Mike. It's so gratifying to know that people are listening and thinking about the Unknown Studio all the time. In fact, if any of you has have any criticisms or, or you want to send us a warm fuzzy or you want to tell us we're a bunch of fucking idiots, uh, please feel free to do so. Email the show at theunknownstudio.ca. I can't promise that we'll respond. Well, who am I kidding? We're probably going to respond because uh, that's kind of how we roll. So now that we've opened up the mailbag, we can close it again and we'll get on with the show. It's the League of Extraordinary Media, theedmontonian.com, truebrittle.com, the unknown studio, user-created content. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a guarantee of quality Edmonton-based online content. If you're interested in joining or would like more information, visit leagueofextraordinarymedia.com. making company called Geek Badge. And uh, what is it that, how did you get started in making what are basically buttons? Well, it started out, I really like buttons and everywhere I went, I bought them. And so one summer when I had a little bit of extra money, I just spent $300 and bought a button machine and started making random buttons and giving them to my friends. And then when I got involved in roller derby, all of a sudden these roller derby teams wanted buttons to sell at games. And I started getting more and more requests and having more and more ideas. And the next thing I know, it turned into an online store and a custom button making business. Yeah. And, and so part of the, my fascination with it was that because I follow you on Twitter, I got to sort of, in a way, I guess, watch it grow. Like I knew that you made them and you made a few random ones for our Yeg Swap event, which was very cool. Thank you very much. Um, that it just seemed to sort of come out of nowhere. So did you stumble into the business or once you bought the button machine right away, were you like, I'm going to turn this into something? I really stumbled into it. It was just more and more people started asking, can you make buttons for me? Can you make buttons for me? Or I, someone would say something and I would say, oh, that has to be on a button. People would totally buy that. And it just started building and building and building until it became an Etsy store. And I was taking orders through email. And now I've actually just this week moved to my own storefront and have started doing some partnerships with local charities. And it's kind of exploded all of a sudden in the last few weeks. So you do, like you mentioned, you have a couple streams of products. You've got your, your charity buttons, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, and the sort of straight commerce one. So can you explain a little bit about how the charity buttons work? Well, the charity buttons started out because some friends of mine run a dog rescue in Edmonton called Cali Can, where they fly dogs in from California to look for homes here, small breed dogs that normally are hard to find in Alberta. And I have a rescue dog myself. And I was so excited about all of this that I made this set of buttons that say, you know, I heart rescue dogs, rescue dogs rock. 
and decided, well, I'm going to put these in the store, and when they sell, I'm going to give the proceeds from each set to this dog rescue because they need the money. It's raising awareness about something that I think is very cool. And then the next thing that came up was the Edmonton Humane Society was having all these extra cats that they were trying to get rid of, and they needed money for their adoption event. And I was like, well, I could do rescue cat buttons too, and that money could go to the Humane Society. And uh, also upcoming are a set that will uh, proceeds will go to the Alberta Brown Coat Society. And I'm just kind of hoping I'll hear from more people that so, you know, there can be a whole section of the store that is just this money to go to charity. Did you actually approach the charities and ask to do a deal with them or did you just start doing it and donating money? Uh, I asked Callie Can about it at first because, as I said, I know the people who read it. And they were like, that's such a cool idea. We love it. And so I thought that was great. And they liked it a lot. So I contacted the Humane Society next and said, this is what I've done for Callie Can. I'd love to do the same thing for you and send the proceeds to you. Is it okay if I use your name on the website and say this? And they're like, that's amazing. Our cats could always use the money. And so now I've approached the Alberta Brown Coats. They love the idea. And so it'll be Firefly and Serenity themed buttons for their set. And... Yeah, like I said, I'm hoping that maybe some charities will come out of the woodwork and contact me because I'd really like to work with more of them. Has Have the buttons been popular with people? And, and if yes or no, what are you doing to promote the business? They've been very popular, and Twitter has been a huge part of that. Um, when the Edmonton Humane Society retweeted posts advertising those buttons, sales went up, uh, and the rescues and charities themselves are promoting them as well. And uh, we had some orders from for the rescue dog buttons from people in California who had heard of the Cali Can Rescue. And really, it's just, it's internet promotion for everything. I mean, Twitter is kind of the stream from which all of these things take off. Yeah. Um, how's the, how are the other sort of more commercial button sales going? And, and what, what do you have in terms of inventory? And what seems to be most popular with people? My most popular stuff right now, and probably because of my brown coat connections, is the Firefly stuff. The quotes from Firefly and Serenity are huge. Uh, they sell really well. The set that I made uh, that have a double rainbow on them have recently been selling really well as well. Uh, there's a Futurama one with the Slurm Cola logo on it that I've been selling a lot of. And inventory-wise, it's really easy to maintain because... I have all of these as digital files on my computer, so someone orders them during the day. I go home, I print it off, I press it into a button, I mail it to them the next morning. So I don't have to keep a huge amount of inventory on stock because I can, as long as I have the parts, I can produce the button you know, within a couple of hours and get it out. It's quite quick to do. Uh, so it's really, you know, it's little nerdy sayings. I've got some Harry Potter related ones and all sorts of things. And as I'm uh, gearing up for hopefully my first convention with Pure Speculation this fall, I have pages of pages. I've got like another 200 buttons worth of ideas in my notebook, and I'm hoping to have those all produced and ready to go by October for that so that I can have a crazy selection. So you'll not only be selling the, like producing buttons to sell at Pure Spec, are you going to allow people to, uh, to, to order through you there, or are you just going to direct them to the website? I'm going to take a lot of a lot of inventory with me. Mm -hmm. If there are specific things that people want and they want to leave their, say, I want 10 of this button, can you email me when that's done? That's fine. I mean, that's the nice thing about it being a small business where I can produce all the product myself means that whatever the customer wants when I'm talking to them, it's really easy for me to be like, yeah, I'm just going to write that down in my notebook and we'll do it. Cool. So uh, you, you're, you're starting to gain traction. Where do you want Geek Badge to go? 
know. I mean, it's it's nice. It's nice extra income, but at the same time, what I like even better is when I see somebody walk by and they're wearing a button that I made. That's so exciting. I mean, even if it's a friend that I see every day, if they're wearing my button, that's so thrilling to me. I love so many little bits of of geekness and pop culture that being able to put them out there is just really fun. As long as I can keep doing that and maybe make a little bit of extra money, that's great. And then getting to work with the charities or getting to work with whether it's roller derby players or in some cases like the Valley Zoo or CKUA Radio to produce buttons for them to sell as well. That's It's all great. I just love buttons. <laughs> cool. Uh, just so you know, everybody, uh, Ari has made unknown studio buttons. So if you happen to see me or Scott out in the world, um, there's a good chance we'll have some on us and you'll have your official unknown studio geek badge. Ari, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much. If you're interested in seeing Ari's inventory of hilarious and geeky badges, point your browser at geekbadge.ca and uh, there's also an option there to get in touch with her to have your own custom geek badges made. So, uh, hello, listeners, 50s of listeners to the Unknown Studio. It's me, Scott, talking to you from the past. Uh, because when this episode gets uploaded by Adam, I will be in the midst of a fabulous road trip vacation. So uh, I'm not actually uh, local to do the show, but I did want to contribute because if I don't, people are going to realize that Adam does the show just fine without me, and that's really detrimental to me. So uh, I've uh, recorded an interview with Mr. Stanley Wu. He is a uh, founding member of the Acapella Quintet Apocalypse Cow. Uh, they're kind of local celebrities, pseudo-celebrities. They are known of. Uh, they've performed at the Fringe for a number of years. Now, what, what uh, year is this for you guys at the Fringe? I think this is our seventh year at the Fringe. You're almost coming up on a decade. That would be fantastic. If we could get some kind of a, a celebration of 10 years at the Fringe, you know, I think that would make for a really good show. Agreed. Now, uh, this year's going to be a little different for you guys, though. That is correct. Uh, longtime fans of Cal will note that we no longer have our resident dreamboat, Gil Barber. And that's because he has moved on to bigger and better things. Uh, he's, uh, he's found that with new job, new wife, new pet, um, life has just opened up for him. So he's off exploring everything that life has to offer. And so we've had to replace Gil Barber with someone else. Now, how could you possibly replace Gil Barber III? Well, we can't fully replace Gil Barber III because Gil has done so much with us and so much for us in his time with Apocalypse Cow. All we can do is find a replacement singer who can grow with us and has the same kind of style that we do and the same sense of humor that we do. Now, was it a difficult process to try to find someone to uh, not necessarily replace Gil, but to step into his shoes, as it were? Well, none of us had ever done... Uh, an audition process before, let alone run an audition process. So we had to plan everything out beforehand. We had to think about what our schedules were like. We had to make sure that all of us were there because we all had to agree on who our new member was going to be. And it turned out to be uh, the first guy that uh, the first guy that responded to our audition request, which I thought was really cool. Now, uh, we're speaking kind of at the moment, to people who are familiar with Apocalypse Cow, but it's possible, however unlikely, that some of our 50s of listeners don't actually know who Apocalypse Cow is. So let's back up a step here. What is Apocalypse Cow about? 
well-known studio listeners, uh, Apocalypse Cow is an acapella quintet, so we don't use any instruments except for our voices, maybe an egg shaker, uh, maybe a kazoo, you know, but most of uh, the music that you will hear will be performed by our voices. Uh, we do a lot of different kinds of music. We do uh, covers of everything from punk to hair metal to video game theme songs to cartoon theme songs to doo-wop to barbershop. We cover a wide range of music, and it's all music that we all love to sing, and uh, we think that uh, you'll love to hear. Now, uh, what goes into putting together an a cappella band? What, what brought you guys together the first time with the desire to get out there and put yourselves out there and sing without instruments? Oh, uh, you're taking me back like 11, maybe 12 years now. Um, way back in the day, back in the Stone Age, um, a lot of us, uh, the four members plus Gil, were members of the University of Alberta Mixed Chorus. We were all members of the longtime members of the choir there. And uh, a couple of us were asked to kind of start this a cappella group. Uh, that didn't work out, but we thought, hey, you know what? Being in an a cappella band, that sounds like a really cool idea. So we asked a couple of our other friends in the choir, and there you have it. And that's where the original, original members of Apocalypse Cow came together. Now, Apocalypse Cow wasn't originally a quintet, as I understand it. Is that true? That's true. Uh, we, uh, no, it was originally a quintet. Okay, elaborate. Originally, we were five guys, um, and the only place we ever sang was uh, during choir tour. And at the end of choir tour is like this big giant skit night where members of the choir can, you know, put together skits and things. And we came up with a, a short little program and we performed for them uh, that first year. And we were a big hit. Now, the second year that we uh, Apocalypse Cow went uh, on tour, one of the guys couldn't make it. So we had to get a replacement, and our replacement was the guy who could sing one of the songs that we wanted to sing, and that turned out to be Devin R. Bruce. So uh, Devin Bruce joined the group at that point. Devin Bruce uh, started off as a replacement, and then after Choir 2, we thought, hey, this guy is really, really good. He is fantastic. We love his voice. He's got a natural flair for singing. He's very musical. He knows a lot about music. He knows a lot of songs. Can we bring him into the group? And then we became a sextet. Uh, unfortunately, shortly after that, we had to let a guy go, but we've been pretty successful ever since as a quintet. For the record, uh, the other members of Apocalypse Cow at that point were Joel Rivero, Gilbert Barber III, Mr. Stanley Wu, and Kyle Jago. And uh, for the most part, Apocalypse Cow has been fairly steady with that group until obviously as we already established just recently where Gil had to leave the group. So who is the person you ultimately brought in to replace Gil? Well, our new member is Joel Fourth. A second Joel. Uh, technically, yes, but if you pronounce it correctly, we have one Joel and one Joel. Fair enough. Tell us about the new guy. Well, Joel is a, uh, he's a younger guy, but he's uh, part of the choir that uh, Jago and Joel are in. Uh, he was the first guy that responded to our audition request, and he told us that he'd been fans of Cow, and he thought, you know what, I'd like a chance to sing with these guys, because I want to sing in an a cappella band, and these guys seem right up my alley. And sure enough, in the short time that we've been singing with him, uh, it's proven to be true. He's already come at us with a couple of arrangements, and he fits in really well. Uh, I just hope we aren't overworking him too much. 
So uh, are we going to be hearing any of these new arrangements at the Fringe this year? You might. We have potentially four new songs for our fans at the Fringe this year. Ooh. Uh, now, I know that uh, Apocalypse Cow has a uh, has a devoted fan base. Uh, I can count a number of people who I know who are in this same area that we are recording this interview in right now who are longtime fans of Cow. Uh, you guys actually have a bit of, I would go as far as to say, a cult status in the city. What is it like to be an almost pseudo-celebrity? To being, uh, being an almost pseudo-celebrity is quite gratifying, actually. You know, walking around, you just never know when that one person may or may not recognize you on the street and may or may not come up to you and say hi and, I heard you at the Fringe, or I heard you guys sing at this wedding or that function. Um, it makes going out just a, a fraction more interesting. Now you guys aren't all just uh, weddings and functions. You have an album. Is that true? We do have a CD. We recorded it uh, two, f- two years ago, I think now. And uh, we still have copies available, but they are running low. And I don't know, I don't know if we're going to be repressing it. So uh, maybe you should come out to the Fringe and see us and buy a CD. Ooh, hint, hint, if you uh, are a fan of acapella music. Uh, so you guys, again, are going to be at the Fringe <clears throat> this year. What's, uh, what's your show about? You guys usually have a kind of a theme running through your show every year. What can we expect to see this year without necessarily any major spoilers? Well, the name of the show this year is Apocalypse Cow Live and in Person. Um, I think I'm going to leave it at that because the show itself is uh, it's still a little in flux. And uh, I don't want to give anything away that we might be changing later on. Now, if any of our 50s of listeners are intrigued enough that they'd like to come down and take in the cow, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 10th time, uh, when are you guys performing? Well, that's the treat for all of us, uh, all of the Apocalypse Cow fans out there. In previous years at the Fringe, because many of us have had day jobs and couldn't get vacation, we've, we, wouldn't, we weren't able to perform uh, in the daytime. But this year, by seeming coincidence or the alignment of the planets or whatever, we are all able to make all of our scheduled shows. So, uh, so we have 17 performances over the course of the Fringe. That's two shows... Uh, most every day, uh, except for the first Saturday of the Fringe, where we are not performing at all. There you have it. So uh, if you're going down to the Fringe and you want to take in an outdoor show while you're getting your green onion cakes, uh, Apocalypse Cow is certainly one of the ways that you can go, and you certainly won't uh, be disappointed because they're fantastic guys, and uh, they put on a hell of a show. So thank you very much, Stan, for taking a moment to talk to the Unknown Studio today. Thanks, Scott. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. And now, Sex Talk, brought to you by the Traveling Tickle Trunk. So, there's a furor over Facebook lately amongst women in uh, the sex-positive sex business because Facebook removed the page of Albuquerque Sex Shop Self-Serve 
after they posted a video they pr produced entitled, You Don't Need Labiaplasty. The video is an homage to the beauty of the vulva and of women in general, explaining the dangers of genital cosmetic surgery and encouraging women to really love their bodies. So it just happens to include a few drawings and photos of various vulvas. Their point being that all vulvas are different and there's no such thing as a normal or abnormal one. According to Facebook, this is nudity and it got their page deleted and the accounts of all of the administrators on the page without so much as a warning. So I understand the video shows pictures of vulvas. Technically, yes, it's nudity and it violates the terms of service. But what we have to ask here is why is this video that just shows vulvas in a non-sexual, objective way considered so offensive that it has to be removed? Facebook allows pages for Playboy, Penthouse, numerous porn stars, adult modeling sites. Sure, those pages don't have nudity per se, but they show next to naked women in sexually provocative positions, marketing themselves for porn movies and magazines. Why is that not obscene? And a simple picture that could be in anyone's anatomy textbook is. It's time for us to examine our double standard around female sexuality. Sure, it's great to see women flaunting their sexuality. Just don't show us what your vulva actually looks like. If you'd like to see the video, we have a link to it. A link to it, not the actual video, on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash traveling tickle trunk. Speaking of pretty vulvas, there's a new way to feel great about your vajayjay, which does not involve cutting off parts of it. It's called vajazzling. Vajazzling is all the rage now and involves getting a full Brazilian wax and then gluing rhinestones to your privates. According to those who provide this service, the rhinestones are supposed to last several days until they just fall off on their own or wash off in the shower. So I have to admit I'm a little confused by this. Does this leave you dropping shiny little gemstones out of your panties for days? And what about the poor lover who ends up with one of these little suckers stuck between his teeth? There's already more than enough potential for embarrassing moments when going down. Do we really need to be worrying about choking on a lover's artwork? I won't be running out to get bejazzled anytime soon, but if the thought appeals to you, I'm sure there's an Edmonton spa that does it, or you can get a home kit online. Perfect for all you arts and crafty ladies out there. But don't post pictures of your vajazzling project on Facebook. If a drawing of a vulva can get you kicked off, a vajazzled vajayj certainly will do it. My name is Carrie Robinson, and I'm a personal uh, trainer at Prime Fitness Studio in Edmonton. Okay, so recently you were asked, or no, hang on, let's, let's back, up. back up. You decided at some point to audition to be on the show Wipeout. Yes, I did. I heard about the Canadian tryouts because I'm absolutely, I'm an obsessed wipeout watcher in general. So I heard about the Canadian tryouts and just decided to go online and apply and just went for it. So what did the, what's the application process involve? Ooh, so it's actually, when you went on, when I went online, it was seven pages full of questions and you had a 250, or no, 2,500 max character. So they expected you to be, to really elaborate and be yourself. So they asked you random questions like, what's your favorite food, your scariest moment in life, the craziest thing you've ever done? If you were a food, what would you be? Things like that, just most random things. So. And, and how many people typically um, apply to be on Wipeout? Um, they told us that over 45,000 Canadians applied. And there was four um, callback stations, Prince Edward Island, Toronto, um, Calgary, which I was at, and British Columbia. So you were shortlisted based on the questions that you answered? 
Yeah, they said apparently I had a pretty amazing, um, a pretty amazing application. I tried to be as wacky and out there as possible, trying to tell funny stories. Um, I said I wanted to, if I was a food, I'd be a cotton candy blizzard, and explained why. Um, and why would you be a cotton candy blizzard? Because they only came out for six months, <laughs> approximately, and I was obsessed with them, secretly obsessed with them. And uh, I would want to be a cotton candy. Candy Blizzard just so that I could bring them back and have them whenever I could. That's what my explanation was. And they just thought things like that were hilarious. You just had to be out there and just silly and stupid. So those are my answers. So after you after you answered all these questions, they shortlisted you. Yes, yes. And then you had to make a video? Yeah, so um, they shortlisted. So there was about 300 people at each audition um, or each callback. And uh, they asked me to make a video so that producers could see me beyond the words that I wrote. So uh, they basically just told me to be as creative as possible and they could spot someone who's fake in a second. So just be creative, but yourself at the same time. So I said to the producer on the phone, well, I'm a trainer. What if I trained in 80s gear? And he thought that was absolutely fabulous. So that's what I did. I was in 80s gear and spandex, even to the point, you know, the, you know, the full piece up the butt. And I was just rocking it out to 80s music and uh, said, oh, I think I said in my video that, oh, uh, we're at Prime Fitness. We're so up to date on our, on our fitness protocol. And clearly I wasn't. I was in 80s gear. So I just tried to make him as laugh as much as possible. And so then you get this call back to go down to Calgary and and tell me what the day in Calgary was like, because it's not like you get there and right away you go and see the producers. No, you were told to show up at 8 a.m., which we showed up at 7.50, and um, there was already pretty, I think about 200 people already in line. So people showed up between 7, 7.30 to get a spot, but little did we know they had already pre-assigned us numbers. So whether or not I came at 7 or 8 o'clock, it didn't matter. Um, so we were all filed in this huge room. It was at the TELUS Convention Center downtown in Calgary. We were just filed in this huge room, all lined up, and uh, they randomly signed you numbers. Unfortunately, I was 138 out of 300 people. <laughs> the guy in front of me was number 14. So it was completely random. It didn't mean anything. And then we were filed into another room that was um, just lined up with, uh, with convention-style chairs you know, banquet style chairs and you sat there and waited for your number to be called. And what were some of the other people like that were, that were waiting there with you? So I cannot explain. This was like the land of crazies. <laughs> I felt that I was the only normal person there. The people literally were in character. They had been dressed up in their character outfit and they walked around and pretended to be that character all day. That's how badly they wanted to be on the show just to be absolutely different than everybody else. So it was, Everything from a naked cowboy kind of guy to some guy who just various characters. Various. One girl was the man eater. One guy was Mr. Mullet, and he had grown this mullet for seven years. Uh, and he walks around like that. But he, you know, and then another guy was uh, a mama's boy. So just they chose these characters and uh, decided to be that to get noticed. And what did you do to get noticed? So, well, I thought as soon as this uh, producer said on the phone, we can spot fake people in a second. I thought I'm not going to go outlandish and be something I'm not. So I made these wipeout t-shirts with silly pictures on them that I was uh, what I wore for Halloween in the years past. But I brought Halloween costumes and thank gosh I did because when they called my number and I had sat there for seven hours, uh, it was a long day, but a long day of, uh, you know, you're entertained by the host was there. He entertained us a little bit. 
Uh, they played Twister with people, so I, ca- different characters are playing Twister. But once I was called, I decided that uh, I would put on one of my Halloween costumes, and it was a Super Dave costume. <laughs> so it was a one, a full one piece with the Super Dave white hat, and it was a zip down. So I still wore the shirt underneath, and uh, decided to be Super Dave for the day. <laughs> and when you finally got into the room with the producers after seven hours of sitting there waiting to be called, what was it that they had you do? Well, initially I was really worried because they had been there for seven hours. They thought saw 137 people before me. So I knew I had to make them laugh or else they would not remember me and the rest of the day would be a blur for them. So I walked in there and I did some uh, jumping lunges in my Super Dave outfit. <laughs> and there was about there's about 10 producers or, or um, you know, casting guys and so on in there and uh, looked absolutely exhausted. They were already done for the day, you could tell. So they basically the first thing they asked was your shout out. So when you start on Wipeout and you see on TV that they say something really silly and then they start start the course. So I was originally going to do this with my twin sister. Mm-hmm. She backed out. So my original shout out was Twintastic Boombastics, which really made no sense because I came in there by myself. But I said it anyways, and I did like a jumping lunge while I said it, and then you could hear my sister in the background screaming. So they got it and they laughed, and then they asked me for my victory dances, and I had three. <laughs> Just, just in case, I wanted options, so I gave like a hands down low kind of victory dance, a hands down high, and then like around the world craziness. And then they wanted to know why I picked three, and I, I just let them know. Well, if another contestant decides to go down low, I got one up high, and so on, right? <laughs> yeah. So just made them laugh with that, try to be creative. Told, asked me if I had any nicknames, asked me what's the craziest thing I've done, um, asked me if I wanted to be famous, and probably asked me that question five times. And so I finally said to them, if I wanted to be famous, I'd learn how to sing or I'd learn how to dance and go on another reality show. I wouldn't be getting my ass kicked on Wipeout. Yeah. So and they thought that was funny. Um, another one was, what would you do with the money? So I said, hookers and blow. And then I said, just kidding. And then I said, clearly I'd give it to the church because I want to be closer to God. And then I said, just kidding. And then I, I said something just totally normal, like, oh, I'd pay my parents back or something like that. And they thought that was great. So just made them laugh. Yeah. So what is the, the, the prize that you get if you win at Wipeout? You win a whole whopping fifty thousand dollars. Nice. However, the show's taped in Argentina. That's where their international course is. So, however much the Canadian government government decides to take from you when you get home, and the Argentina government decides to take from you when you leave, who knows how much you really win? So, you're really in in it for the experience of, of being on the show, not because it's you know being on the show, but you want to go through the course. You want to spend a week in Argentina, really. Absolutely. They said they take about 200 people and um, they tape a whole uh, season's worth for a week in Argentina. So whether or not you tape on the first day, awesome. You have the rest of the week in Argentina. But who doesn't want to just sit there with their friends and everyone's laughing at you because you're getting your ass kicked on big balls. You're getting your face punched and you're throwing yourself in some water. That's something you could just check off a life list. Just sheer fun. Why wouldn't you? Awesome. So when are you meant to find out whether or not you've made it on the show? So the rumor was, and they didn't tell us anything, um, the rumor was that if we didn't hear by August, the end of August, you're out. So, I mean, it's August 7th, 8th today, and, uh, I mean, the days are counting. But to be honest with you, there was such a a amount of craziness in there that I really don't feel like I'll be picked. But uh, if I don't hear by the end of August, it's no no go. 
and the, the video view that you made for the producers is actually available on YouTube. Okay. So so you have that sort of for posterity, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's secretly named. Uh, uh, it's not even a wipeout name because I don't want anyone to see it. But if I don't get on YouTube, I'll probably just make it a mass thing so everyone could see what I went through and put made a fool of myself essentially to get on there. So. Well, I really hope you get on the show. And thanks very much for talking with us, Carrie. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I would like to thank our sponsors, including those ink-stained wretches at the Edmonton Journal. They saw fit to sponsor our podcast before anyone else did, and they support us by supplying us with links and great shout-outs. So very, very big thanks to the Edmonton Journal. We'd also like to thank the folks at Guru Digital Arts College. The executive director, Owen, is a uh, very forward-thinking guy, and he sees a lot of potential in new media, and uh, they support the Unknown Studio in a big way. Also like to thank the owner of the Traveling Tickle Trunk, Brenda Kerber, who's been a great support to us as well. Brenda gets it. She understands that uh, building community and connections within your, you know, immediate area is of tremendous value. And we're very, very proud to have her and her store, The Traveling Tickle Trunk, as one of our sponsors. So there you have it, the end of another exciting episode of The Unknown Studio. I'd like to thank my co-host, Optimus Prime. I am Optimus Prime. We know what your name is, Optimus Prime. Autobots, transform and roll out. You said that last time. The Decepticons must be stopped. Well, that one's actually new. Well, anyway, thank you very much for tuning in, and uh, Scott will be back in the studio in our next episode. Uh, Just a quick little preview for you there. We're going to have Edmonton expat Daniel Kazor in the studio with us. Daniel Kazor is a friend of ours from back in our university days who managed to score himself a plum job with the National Post. He's one of their web editors and one of their page editors as well. So we'll get Dan's perspective on all things geek and other various exciting things, including what it's like to be totally awesome and from Edmonton but living in Toronto where no one thinks you're totally awesome so thanks again for tuning in thanks very much for uh, to everyone who uh, allowed us to interview them this week Um, go out and enjoy the fringe and we'll see you on the next episode of the unknown studio You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 30. Our guest, well, there were a heck of a lot of them. Pre-production by Adam Rosenhart and Optimus Prime. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca and drop us a line at the show at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. My phone is ringing at this time, so this part will be cut out by Adam Rosenhart. I'll call that person back later. Why is this happening? This is really bad timing. Don't worry. We're making, uh, we're making Adam work this way. We're making him pay for all the work that I usually do. Oh.